Well, I've come to tell you tonight that you've got it all wrong. Sorry. I think a lot of times you'll hear things from one side of the camp in the world and we'll be, since we're living in the world, we buy into a lot of things that they have to say. And I'm here to tell you that the world has it all wrong. In other words, you've been deceived. Someone's tricked you. Someone's told you something that wasn't true. And hopefully in reading the word of the Lord today in Colossians 2, we'll get a little insight into how we can correct that. Last week, we learned about holiness. We learned five reasons why people do not pursue after holiness. To be holy means to be set apart, means to pursue after God. And you can't pursue God. You can't chase after God without also loving his character as well. So we saw last week that in order to love God, you have to also love his law, have to love his commands, have to love his word, have to love his character. You cannot pursue that character without, uh, you can't pursue God rather without pursuing his character. And so we went into the five reasons why people don't pursue after God. They don't pursue after holiness. And today we're going to get into the practicalities. What is the world saying that you should do? How do we break out of this habit of following after our own desires? Well, let's look at verse 8 in Colossians 2. And it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In other words, beware of any philosophy, any set of thoughts, any set of ideas that is not of Jesus, that is not of God. And if you're here today thinking why, I'm going to tell you why. It's because everyone is betting their life on a philosophy. Even the philosophy saying, well, I don't have one. That's a philosophy. You've chosen a set of ideas. And to say, I'm surrendering those ideas to nothingness. I'm not going to think about it. That's your way of doing something. That is, in effect, your idea. I was talking to a student recently that was telling me that she was taking a class and the teacher told her to keep religion out of school. Keep your thoughts, keep your ideas, keep your religion outside of school. That in itself is a set of ideas. It is a philosophy. And we would have to ask, well, if there is no God, if there's no authority up here telling us what's right, what's wrong, then who are you to tell me that I should keep my ideas out of school? Who are you to tell me that I can't bring my religion? What philosophy gives you the right to tell me that I'm wrong and I should set those ideas aside? If your life philosophy... If your life, your set of ideas that you live by is to be the most popular kid in school, you're going to act accordingly to that belief. If you think that the most important thing in life is to be popular in your school right now, and I have a bunch of friends that have acted like that in high school, and it's really weird because they were the cool kids in high school, and as soon as you leave high school, they are still living as if they're in high school. And they have nothing to do with their lives. You know, they get drunk on the weekend. They don't have a job. And you look at them like, wow, what happened to your life? It's because they've invested all their time into becoming popular, to being that 
class clown, to be that person that everyone likes, everyone loves. But when high school ends, what do they do? How do they cope with the lack of attention? When you don't have internet access to go on Facebook or Instagram, how do you cope with the lack of attention you're getting? In other words. So if your life philosophy is to be the most popular kid in school, you're going to actually sacrifice friends in the meantime. You might say, I don't deserve this drama. And so you, you know, delete the person off Facebook, you clean your Facebook list, and then you'll make a status about it, how, you know, the remaining people are your true friends. You'll make the cut because you don't deserve that drama. Your goal is not to make as many friends as possible, although some of you might try to get as many people on your friends list as possible. In real life, you're, if your goal is to be the most popular kid in school, you're going to sacrifice friends, family, anything else in order to achieve that goal. But I have to ask, what do you do once you've attained? Once you are the most popular kid in school, once you are the most appreciated, you got the most likes, what do you do when you've reached that point? Well, everyone is betting their life on a philosophy or a set of ideas because they believe it's through that idea, it's through getting the fame, through getting popularity or whatever it is that you think is the most important thing to you, it's through that that they believe they're going to obtain meaning and purpose. The reason why they hold to a set of ideas, even the idea that there is no purpose, which is itself an idea, the reason they hold on to those ideas is because that's how they believe they will obtain meaning and purpose. Albert Camus, a French philosopher, existentialist, also absurdist philosopher, used to talk about suicide. He said the most fundamental problem of all philosophy is why not commit suicide? Why doesn't everyone just kill themselves? Because he saw the problem as in the world without God, there is no true meaning. No objective meaning purpose outside of yourself. Meaning the teacher, not just the teacher telling you what to do, but someone saying this is the standard that we all have to live by. And looking at reality without God, there is no transcendent meaning above humanity purpose that we can look to and point at and say, no, this is the purpose for every single person's life. It's only what you make of it. But if we all live and we all die, like Solomon said, what's the point? So I raise a lot of money. I work really hard to obtain all the riches I, I can obtain in this life. What do I do when I die? Because the person I leave those treasures to didn't deserve those treasures. It's all meaningless. That's why Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. He talks about the futility of life. If you've never read the Bible before, you're not really in the habit of reading the Bible, read Ecclesiastes. It'll wake you up. It's, that's why it's my favorite book, because I feel like he just speaks truth. And we know that the Bible is truth, but that's, that's where it really related in my life. People say, and they base their philosophy on, do what makes you happy. And then we have to question it. Not just take a surface answer, yeah, everyone wants to be happy, we ask, what is happiness? Or that annoying seventh grader that raises their hand and asks why all the time. We ask, why be happy? What is happiness? Most people might say, well, it's, you know, doing your best in life and being a good person. That's how you're happy. You know, you, you, you work really hard in your life. 
you get a job, you go to college, or you go to college, you get a job, you raise a family, you have kids, and you know, you just do the best that you can, and you try to live a moral life, and try to be a good person, and that is happiness. But then we can imagine a world in which that person is falsely accused of a crime. Here you have, you know, we'll call him George. George goes to college, gets a good job, makes, you know, lots and lots of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and maybe even becomes a millionaire. You know, he gets a family, he's content, he's happy with his kids. Well, let's say he gets falsely accused of a crime, he's thrown in jail. How's that happiness? He didn't do anything wrong. You see, there's something wrong in the world that we live in. You aren't necessarily safe just because you live a good life. There's no guarantee. There's no, no one guaranteeing or promising you outside of God saying, oh, everything's going to work out. Everything happens for a reason. It's just some idea that someone said. And we all say, well, I, that, I'd like that to be true. Or you try to adopt Buddhism and say there is no self. So we're all the same person. So it's all working together because we're all the same thing. But if there's no God, there's no one guaranteeing that you're going to be okay. There's no one guaranteeing that your future is going to end up okay. That you're going to have a job. That you're going to have kids. That you're going to ha be happy at some point in time. But it's through God, through a real transcendent creator that we find true meaning, true purpose. Because it's not like we'd like to believe him that he exists. But he actually exists. Luke 12 verse 15 through 21. Jesus says, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And he gave them a parable, which is a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, which is kind of awkward because he's talking to himself. My friend, you have stored away uh, enough for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Because you see, without God, there's no one guaranteeing your success. Anything that you do in this life, if God isn't there to say, here, I have a purpose. I have meaning for your life. I have a guarantee that you're going somewhere. It's only what you make of yourself. And when you die, it's all left meaningless. In other words, you could pursue happiness. You could chase after those things, but you could go home tonight, get in a car accident and die. And in other words, you as a person that lives their life in a basically good way, without God, that is, lives their life in a basically good way, tries to be happy, is no different than the person that commits suicide or the person that kills other people or the person that just dies because everyone dies. And no matter what you do in this life, in a hundred years, no one's going to care. No one's going to care who Michael Jackson was. No one's going to care who Justin Bieber was. Most people don't care who he is now. <laughs> These things are fads. They last for a little bit. And people think that that's the pinnacle. That for one year, they can be seen by everyone. And that's going to mean something. But you're seen by 1% of all of mankind that's lived over the span of time. 1%. I just made up that number, but it sounds good to me. You're seen by such a small fraction of people that have lived over the span of time. And we live for the impressions of those people because we want them to feed into our pride. 
to show us that, yes, you have value, you have meaning, you have purpose. But apart from God, it's hard to see why there would be any of that. Nor I almost said the Bible says, but it's Norman Geisler who said this quote. Without God, we are left with extracting meaning and happiness from seeking and achieving the highest human good in this world. Without God, ultimate happiness and meaning ultimate happiness and meaning will always be, in the final analysis, elusive concepts. In other words, concepts we will never really catch. People say it's not about obtaining happiness, it's about the pursuit of happiness. Maybe you've heard that. It's not really about getting happiness, it's just the pursuit. It's in the struggle, it's in working, and you might have experienced that. It's not necessarily when you've obtained that trophy, but all the hard work that you've done in the moment. But I'd ask, is that really true? I mean, can you imagine you want to get married one day, but what if someone told you, yeah, your marriage is going to be a wreck. You're going to have heartache. You're going to be failed. And, and in the end, your person's going to, the person you're married to is going to divorce you. But it's going to be okay because your engagement's going to be really fun. You know, that period of like a couple months, that's going to be awesome. As soon as you get married, oh, divorce in a year. Would you want to get married? No. You would say it's not worth it. People need meaning in their lives. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. C.S. Lewis said, most people, if they, have really learned to if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offered to give to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm, I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery might have been excellent, and the chemistry might be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. The world is seeking meaning in meaningless things. But you see, the interesting thing, and the reason why everyone's caught up in this, is because how do you get someone to do something that you don't want to do? Raise your hand. Yes, Zach. Psychology. Sort of. You're close. Yes. Manipulation. Manipulation. What's, what's another word? It starts with a P. Close. No, it's not pineapple either. It's, it's two words, really. Peer pressure. Thank you. Now, shh. You've probably known your friends in the world that are pretty good at peer pressuring you into doing things that you don't want to do, sinning and doing stuff that you know you shouldn't do. The best person at peer pressure that I've ever known in my life was Andy Dean. <laughs> he could trump any sinner that I know in peer pressure. Like, I've had my friends, Patty's husband, I remember on one retreat, he paid him like 20 bucks to rip off all the hair on his leg with duct tape. I know. It's ridiculous. I don't know how he got people to do this stuff, but he pays people and he's like, hey, why don't you just eat this or drink that? 
he's just really good at it. He gets people to do that, do the stuff that he doesn't want, that they don't want to do. So, shh, 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 reminiscing of Andy. The, what the world does to us is they tell us, you're missing out. And they try to propagate the, these kinds of things to us through media, through what they're doing in text messages. And they say, how is it possible that you think you can have fun without sex, without alcohol, without drugs? They look at us and they, they almost look at us like we're weird. And some of you feel like that. And some of you might be looking at Christians like that, like they're weird. How, how is it even possible that you can have fun without those things? The assumption is that rules and placed by God are there to keep us from having fun. Rules equal no fun. That's what you've been trained to believe as you're growing up. And I know that's, that was the case kind of last night when we went to Rebounders. And we were watching this instructional video for two minutes about don't flip, don't run, don't jump, don't have fun. But have fun. And you're like, wait, we're not allowed to flip? We can't jump? Isn't a whole point of being on a trampoline that you jump? But we made it fun. We, we came up with some obstacles. But sometimes you'll think that rules are in place to keep you from having fun. But here's something interesting to consider. And everyone look up here real quick. Everyone, if you really think about it, you have your own set of rules to which your desires are upheld by. What I mean by that is everyone has their own set of rules to keep their desires in check. Whether it's rules in place by your family, rules in place by God, or rules that you made up yourself, everyone has rules. Because no one just lets their desires go off in maximal ways in every direction. Whenever someone is hungry for food, sometimes you say, well, I'm training for the Olympics. Sometimes I'm training for a sport. I'm not going to eat that cookie. Because if you just let your desires go left and right, you would not be in a very good shape. Or the same thing with sex. If you just let your desires go rampant, everyone would have millions of babies everywhere. That would not be very good. We don't need more babies. If everyone texted the girl that they love every single second they've gotten that desire, she'd probably dump them. Or she'd think, she'd think that she's, he's the weirdest guy in the world. It's not about having no rules. It's about having the right rules. It's not about having no rules. It's about having the right rules. So we can turn the question back on those people and say, how in the world do you have fun with sex, with drugs, with alcohol, with all these things that you've put in place saying, I'm going to do whatever I want whenever I feel like it. How do you have fun with those things? Or how do you have fun? Well, how do you have fun with those things? But how do you have fun rather without those things? That's what I was trying to say. How do you have fun when you're not around those things, when you're not surrounded by media, when you're not surrounded by your friends, when you're not surrounded by alcohol and those things that you're using that I'm not allowed to partake in, how do you have fun without those things? Can you imagine people trying to go clubbing without being drunk? Like all those videos of your friends being drunk, you're laughing, oh, it's so funny. That's like the life of the party. And if you don't have anyone drunk, it's kind of like, oh, we're just, we're dancing and we look bad and everyone knows it because we're all conscious. This is awkward. Everyone would stop partying because they're like, well, how do you have fun with those things? Well, how do you have fun without those things? You know, because I've abstained from those things largely when I was in high school and throughout college, I think I've been a lot more productive than most of my friends. I'm not saying that to brag or anything, but I've just been a lot, I've been able to do a lot more things than most of my friends because 
When I was in college, all, all they'd talk about was alcohol or drinking or drugs. Alcohol or drinking is the same thing. But they'd talk about looking forward to the weekend, and that's all they did. In the meantime, I was getting auditions for movies. I was playing shows with my band. I was doing things with my life. I was gaining experience so that when I got my internship, they're like, oh, yeah, we definitely want you, and we want to pay you because I was doing something with my life. But most people that were my age in, in the college, it was kind of disappointing because everywhere I looked, everyone was just stupid and had no point of living. No one questioned their life and saying, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Some people are looking to a relationship to give them ultimate meaning. And they think through their relationship, they're going to get all the attention they need, all the love that they want to receive is going to be through that relationship. But the interesting thing is, if you really do that, and you put all your hopes in that relationship, you're going to crush the other person with your expectations. What I mean by that is you're going to hope that that person is perfect, never offends you, never cheats on you, never says anything bad about you, and they're going to disappoint you. And you're going to crush that person with your expectations because you're expecting them, in other words, to be God. And no person can be God for you. Because you see, the things of this world can't really satisfy us. The things of the world can only fill us with hunger pains. Like the growling you get in your stomach, that's all that the world can do is fill you with more longing for more. But it can't ever satisfy you. And we're always trying to distract ourselves, saying, I can't just sit around and do nothing. I can't just be bored. I have to do something with my life. Kierkegaard said, boredom is the root of all evil, the despairing refusal to be oneself. My youth pastor used to tell us that boredom is a sin. I'm not going to tell you that because I think it's ridiculous. I do think that people can be more productive in their times. I do think idle time is dangerous if you're not knowing what you're going to do then you're left with just wasting your time. But I think it's through the times of idleness, through boredom, that you see who you really are. When you're left with nothing, no distractions, no alcohol, no drugs, no friends, what do you think about? What do you do? Kierkegaard said it's the refusal to be yourself. Don't let anyone deceive you, brothers and sisters in Jesus. Don't let anyone trick you through empty deceit, through these philosophies, through these set of ideas. You are complete in Christ. And that's what it says in verse 10. You are complete in him. You don't need anything else. The world tries to say, don't you want this? Wouldn't you feel better if you had this? And we can say, well, it'd be nice to have that thing, but I'm okay. I'm complete in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Sometimes, you know, unless you go slowly through these verses, and that's why I'm encouraging you to, to really take your time in studying the scriptures, 
Sometimes you miss out the powerful imagery that's in these verses. It wasn't until recently that I realized how much imagery is trapped, or not trapped, is contained in these couple verses about you are forgiven. Don't let anyone fool you, Paul is saying. You are forgiven. You might have sins that are still lurking in your heart and you're saying, well, I don't know if I can continue in a Christian life. Isn't this evidence that I'm not really in Christ? What do I do? What do I have to do in order to obtain God's favor? And what he's saying is, you are forgiven. You were dead in your trespasses, but now you are made alive. Not being made alive, like it's a process that you're hoping to be alive, like you're a zombie or something, and you're half dead, half alive. It's not a process. You are now made alive. Christianity, if you haven't noticed, is unique from all the other religions in that we all affirm our weaknesses and think it's a good thing. Have you noticed that? Every other religion says, oh, you're good. Yeah, just keep working hard and you'll be fine. Christianity says, yeah, we're all filthy, rotten sinners and we know it. And that's the only reason why we can go to heaven. It's because we're acknowledging those things. But I think it's a live body that shows, um, a live body shows most when we see the sin inside of us, when we're hurting, when it's healing itself. A dead body, you know, you'll, you'll slice it. Don't go and slice dead bodies. But you poke it, it doesn't heal itself. It's not alive. But a live body, when you poke it, when you prod it, it heals itself. It gets back up. In the same way, a Christian body, when it's alive, when it's thriving, though we may stumble, that is not our end game. We're working towards Jesus. So the objections here to forgiveness, one might be earthly ramifications. In other words, you might say, my sin has been forgiven, but what about all the ramifications of my sin? Yeah, I know Jesus forgives me and all those things, but no one else forgives me. My friends that I've offended, I've really hurt some people. They won't forgive me. How does that, how does that work? If I've really been forgiven, why doesn't anyone else forgive me? When I was a freshman in high school, there was this girl that I liked and we talked. Yeah, it's true. But she went through a really rough time. Uh, you shouldn't disclose this too much, but I, I figured that my life's already on the line anyway. So, um, so I was talking to this girl and then there was a shift. You know, she wasn't giving me what I wanted because she didn't like me back. So eventually I just kind of like pulled ties from her. But she still really cared about me as a person. She started going through some really tough times with her family. Her dad was non-existent. Her mom was doing drugs and stuff. And I left. I was like, I don't want any part of this. She doesn't like me anyway, so who cares? So I pulled myself out of her life. And she actually sent me like this long letter about how like I'm the reason she lives and like really creepy stuff, actually, now that I think about it. But it was this whole thing about how she needs me there for her because she needed something. She needed someone to give her that meaning. And I'm not trying to be super philosophical in that. I'm just saying everyone has a person that they need in their life, whether it's God or another person. And I wasn't there. I ripped up the letter. And I said, well, forget her. She hurt me so bad and whatever. And I can tell you the truth. Like from that day up until now, I've regretted that decision and how much I've hurt her because I've seen her life spiral down towards nothingness. She used to come to church and then she's completely, you know, out of church. She's not a Christian. And now I saw her like a year ago and 
like the whole time I've been praying for her, like every single night, like I hope she forgives me. I just want to be able to apologize to her. And I saw her and I was like, oh yeah. And we were catching up and then I like, you know, I texted her and I called her. I was like, listen, I was a jerk. Sorry. I had to get all that. Are you taking a video of this? <laughs> okay. I was going to say, that's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am disclosing my life and she's like, mobile upload. <laughs> anyway. So there's part of us that can feel that guilt because you've hurt someone really bad. And you feel like, well, how does that work? Am I really forgiven for that that sin that I've committed? Because you still feel that that guilt. Well, I would say to you, don't look to earthly evidence for heavenly forgiveness. Don't look to the earth and people in the world to show you that you're really forgiven in heaven. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? God is your advocate. It's kind of like your best friend mediating between you and another person when you're in a fight. Your best friend's talking and saying, no, we're going to work this out. Your friend's a mutual friend. That, that's God there for you mediating on behalf of you to the other person. And if God is for you, no one can be against you. Here's a second objection. What about secret sins? What about the sins that nobody knows? You might be saying to me, Alan, it, it's nice that you can say that you've been forgiven, but you don't know what I've done. I think everyone here has something that they've done that they're ashamed of. Something that if they told other people, the other person they would feel like would, would leave them as, as a friend or ditch them or whatever it is. You have something that you feel like no one knows and no one can know. Because if people did know, they would think differently about you. And you said, well, Alan, it'd be nice to be forgiven, but I just don't think I can be forgiven for this one thing that I've done. Look at verse 15. Jesus made a public spectacle of those sins, triumphing over them in it. He took those sins. You see, because God sees everything that you've done. And this is God's word to you, speaking from his perspective, saying, I know what you've done. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to nail it to the cross. In other words, it's not going to be remembered. It's wiped. You have a clean slate. You don't have to worry about those sins. They're gone. You don't have to worry about that guilt, because God has taken it. He has paid it all. We can sing those sins, uh, those sins. We can sing those songs to God. Jesus paid it all. And we don't have to add at the end, well, I hope he did. Well, I hope so. We don't have to add those things because we know that Jesus really did pay it all. He has forgiven us of all of our sins. For us to limit God's forgiveness is also to look down on Jesus' sacrifice. For us to say, no, God, you can't forgive me for this, is saying your death wasn't good enough. You had to do something else in order to really forgive me of this sin. And that's simply just not true. Look at verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the bodily or body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. 
When we don't see that we are made complete by what Jesus did on the cross, we will look for other ways to complete ourselves. When we don't think that Jesus' death was enough, we're going to look for other things that we can do in order to really be saved. And so the Corinthians, they had these whole things about, they're like really uh, particular about their festivals and their Sabbaths. Like, do you worship on Sunday because Jesus rose on Sunday? Or do you worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath? So what do you do? And they're really legalistic about those things, meaning they were applying to the law, thinking the law is going to give them salvation. And in fact, Paul also wrote to the Corinthians because some people were so picky about food. Like some of them were saying, well, I can just eat whatever. And others, because back in the day, what they did was there was pagan temples all over the place. And you could go into one of these temples and they would sacrifice food. And then afterwards, it's not like the, the idol's really going to eat the food. It's not real. So they just have all this food and they just, they're going to throw it out. So they're going to sell it on discount to people that want to buy it. So they take the idol food and they sell it for discount. And, and the Corinthian church was looking at it and they're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Do we eat the food? Because it's like offered up to Satan. Or do we not eat the food? They were just not really sure. And some people were really legalistic to the point of saying, no, you cannot eat that because it's demon-possessed food. And if you eat it, you'll become like Satan. You'll be engaging in Satan worship if you eat that food. Which I can kind of sympathize because, you know, here's the equivalent today. If someone took a goat, chopped off its head, and took the goat, sacrificed it on a pentagram, satanic altar, had a seance around it, and said, all right, eat this. Would you eat it? No, I probably wouldn't eat it either. That was probably like one person in here, like Nick Dumphy would probably eat it, right? Because he's the manliest guy here. The rest of us aren't as manly as Nick, so it might be a little bit difficult. But what Paul is saying is, some of these people are thinking that those things are going to give them salvation. That's going to give them the, the nudge ahead from other Christians and saying, well, we have to impose these rules. We have to celebrate on this day. We have to do this thing or eat this food. Paul's saying, no, don't let anyone rob you or trick you into thinking that these symbols mean more than the, the one it's symbolizing, which is the Savior. In other words, it's only holding fast to the head of the church, Jesus, that we're going to grow. And here's the analogy. It's just like, and he says this in the scripture. I'm not making this up. I'm not that smart. It says, holding fast to the head, which is Jesus. Just like the body's nourished and you get food through the mouth, through the head, and it grows throughout the entire body. So we must be looking to Jesus for all of our doctrine, for all of the ways that we are to live our lives. Not through other people, not through the hands saying, well, you should eat this or you should eat that. But it's through the head that we are nourished and we should look to the head in order to engage in and what really gives us salvation. And that's only through Jesus. Look at verse 20. Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Here's something else important to consider. Here's something that might really hit home for you today. Apart from God's power, we cannot overcome the power of sin. Apart from God, you're not going to be able to conquer the fleshly desire, the sinful nature, the bad stuff inside of you. No safeguards, no regulations, nothing you can do, no habits will be able to free you from sin's bond on you, from its hold on you. 
Matthew 15, verse 11 says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. In other words, you can put all kinds of stuff in your mouth, but it's really inside of your heart. That shows how wicked that we are. It's the indwelling stuff. You might say, well, I'm going to stop, you know, I'm struggling with looking at stuff on the internet, so I'm going to break my computer, I'm going to throw it out, I'm not going to watch any TV. And Jesus says, well, you can do that, that's fine, that's great. But really, it's you. You're the evil person. In other words, sin isn't out there somewhere. It's not like when you're little and you're like, the devil made me do it. It's not true. He might have. Probably not. Probably you're not that important for Satan to bug you because he's a busy guy because Satan's only one person. He's not like God. He's not omnipresent. So Satan can only be at one place at one time. Pretty sure he's with the Antichrist right now and dealing with him, organizing the demise of the world. He's not investing his time in you. So don't blame it on Satan. You're an evil person. I'm an evil person. We have wickedness inside of us. And it's when we recognize that, that we look at these things, these safeguards that we put up, saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be held accountable by that. And we say, well, that's nice. That's great. You should do those things. But realize your heart reveals what's inside of you. The problem of the sin becomes all the more real when we realize that it's inside of us and not out there. And in fact, it's not necessarily evil things. That's the problem. Don't blame the fact that there's alcohol out there, you say, if only there wasn't alcohol here, then we wouldn't sin. If only I didn't have clubs by my house, I wouldn't go and party. It's ridiculous. Just don't party. Just don't go to clubs. I mean, you could just do it in a Christian way, which would be kind of awkward, I guess. Just go and be like, hey, what are you here to do? I'm here to save you. Let me evangelize to you. Like, all right, you're really creepy. Go away. I'm probably drunk anyway. So at this point, you're probably asking as we're ending the study very shortly, how do we practically pursue holiness? Because that's a big question. Last week, we talked about why we don't practice holiness. How do we actually do holiness? Like I could just tell you, everyone go and be more holy. And that's it. That's the end of the Bible study. And you'd be like, all right, thanks, Alan. I'm not going to be able to do that because you didn't tell me what to do. Well, I lost my notes. I don't know how to do it. I can only tell you if I'm reading off my notes and my notes just lost me. Just kidding. No, that's not it. I, I do have it here. I was just kidding. I was just tricking you guys so I, I seem less holy. Here's an analogy for you. There's, this is a true story, which is really weird. There's this fat... I'm going to restart, restart that. <laughs> I almost said fat. Taking that back. I didn't say fat. There's this guy... His name was Reynald. I'm going to edit that out. Um, true story. Back in the middle, medieval times, he was a large man, and he had a brother, and he was constantly getting in fights with his brother, and they were on opposing kingdoms and stuff, and it came to the point where he was captured, this guy Reynald, the large man, who was captured, and his brother locked him up in a room, but he didn't actually lock him up. He said, you can leave whenever you want, as long as you're able to leave the room. The door was a normal sized door, but he was so large that he couldn't actually leave the room. And it'd be easy for him to leave the room if he could just lose the weight. But he couldn't because what his brother did is he kept on feeding him all these delicious uh, dishes and everything that he loved to eat. So it was actually literally his desire for, and his appetite that killed him because he kept on eating and he died within a year. True story. Really awkward. How did you get 
I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> Back in medieval times, they had a teleporter. No, shh. Here's, here's the application for you guys. Shh. Sometimes a sin will be more desirable because it's forbidden. Have you noticed that? A sin is more desirable because it's forbidden. Like, I don't see a lot of people that are outside of the church that have a problem with porn. Because, like, porn really isn't that big of a deal. You just look at naked girls and that's it. They don't have a big problem with porn. But it's people inside of the church that are suddenly, oh, I can't look at stuff. Can't look at immodest women. Oh, there's too much cleavage. Oh, my gosh. And everyone goes so crazy over these things. And people in the world think that we're crazy. And, like, wow, why are they so hung up on these things? It's because when things are forbidden, you can't do them. There's a rule. There's something even greater in you that now wants to overcome that desire and say, well, no, I, I can do that. I do want to do that. It's only when you're not allowed to drink alcohol before you're 21, they're like, oh, I have to drink. I want to drink. All my friends are doing it. Why can't I do it? It's only before you turn 13 that you say, I want Facebook. I want to sign up. My friend did it. You're not in junior high, so I can't really use that on you. Well, how do we fight those desires? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I'm really almost done. I'm not joking. Text message. Sorry. <laughs> it's so random. Verse 1. Sorry, Lord. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. We are able to pursue holiness when we stop trying to do it in our own power. Tulian Tavichian said, progress in obedience happens only when our hearts realize that God's love for us does not depend on our progress in obedience. But how do we do that? You're, you're still asking me. It is meditating on God's unconditional love that will motivate us to do his will. It's meditating, thinking on, concentrating on God's love for us, his unconditional love that will cause us to, to make action and to serve God. You say, I serve God because he first served me. I love God because he first loved me. I'm in youth ministry now because someone hung out with me and I felt like I could just talk to him about anything. And he was an older, a little bit older than me and we just hang out. He'd drive me home from church. We had good conversations and he suggested I be in youth ministry and that's how it all started. I serve because someone once served me. And that's how it works. That's our motivation. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of your book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. So it's reckoning the sinful nature dead. It's realizing that you're dead to those sins. You're not doing, that's not you. You're in a new nature. You're a new person. You're renewed in Christ. So it's not you that sins anymore. It's that sinful nature. But now you're in Christ. You are a new creation. 
It's not repressing those desires. It's actually killing them off. So we can practically pursue holiness by reminding ourselves that God's presence is fullness of joy. We remind ourselves that it's through God that we obtain true desire, true happiness, not true desire. We desire true happiness. It's through God. He's the one who holds those things. He's the inventor of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. So some Christians might struggle because an action is forbidden, but what you're doing is you're repressing those desires and you're telling those desires that they're evil. They're evil if you use them in the wrong way, but forget, don't forget that those desires are, should be pointing you towards God. John Piper says, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with the prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure and the confl conflagration of holy satisfaction. That is a huge word. I'm sorry. I just can't use those big words. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because it's through God that you realize where true joy really lies. It's through finding our completion in Christ that we are freed from trying to complete ourselves. So in other words, you can practically live out holiness by remembering who you really are. Tullian Tavitian says, and this is the last quote I'll give you for tonight says, when the gospel re reorients how you think and feel and live, all of life becomes about the work Jesus accomplished for us, not what we can accomplish for him or anyone else for that matter. We're liberatingly decreased while Christ is gloriously increased. Because of this newfound freedom, we suddenly discover how expendable we really are. I know none of us likes to believe we're expendable, but we are, every single one of us. The world will go on without you. The world will go on without me. But only the gospel can cause you to rejoice and be glad in your expendability. Because the gospel shows us that while we matter, we're not the point. That's liberating because when we become the hero of our own story, life becomes a tragedy. You see, the freeing thing in Christ is that you don't have to matter because Christ is all that matters. You don't have to become something because God holds your meaning. He's the one that gives your life meaning. I have three things for you to remember today. It's on the board. The world can't complete you. You can't complete yourself. But you are complete in Christ. Psalm 119, verse 34 through 36 says, Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. All you have to do is give me that understanding. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. So I hope that you today, as we draw the message to a close, I hope you'll think about your life. You won't just let other people define who you are, but you realize that your identity is in Christ. You really are forgiven if you call yourself a believer in Jesus. You don't have to be a slave to those sins to the things that are done wrong in the wrong way. But God, who is the inventor of joy, the inventor of all the things that we enjoy, all the things on this earth, you don't have to use them in the wrong way. You can use it in the way that God prescribes for you, following his set of rules, which is going to give you the most satisfaction because it's through God that we obtain true joy, true meaning, true purpose. Anything outside of that, you'll only be looking for elusive concepts that won't ever be able to be given to you.